When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We can find instant satisfaction in almost anything these days. Sleepy? Instant coffee. Need to sell your car fast? Car sales? Instant offer. That's right. Sell your car the instant way. And get it done with Australia's most trusted site for cars. On 882 6PR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments, because the little things are everything. Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. My guest in this episode, I almost don't know where to start in introducing her. Um, so why don't I just start uh, on your Wikipedia page, Rabia, because not many people can boast this as the first uh, sentence uh, in their Wikipedia page, even those who probably make it up. Uh, an Australian criminal and human rights lawyer, retired British Army officer, author, professional speaker and hostage survivor, which I suppose is the bit that people latch onto straight away, right? Yeah, absolutely. When they want to hear your story, yes. uh, it's generally that. But h- hello and welcome, Rabia Sadiq. Lovely to be with you, Tim. Um, we'll get to uh, to as much of your story as we can, but uh, I do want to talk about um, your, your time uh, in that incredible moment when you were taken hostage uh, mm. in Iraq, sure. in Basra, in Iraq. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it in the context of what's going on in the world now. Obviously, mm. there's just global panic like mm. we've never really seen before. People have kind of referenced it to the GFC, but I think it, it, it is different to that, isn't yeah, it? It sure is. But I suppose, you know, when you are being held captive and you've got a, an AK-47 um, right in front of your face mm. and you're, you're fearing for your life and... and others around you in the same predicament. Mm. Uh, I suppose in that extreme moment, you get to see the essence of, of humanity and what people do in those times of crisis. So yes. with that unique experience, yes. what is your take on, on how the world is currently responding to this pandemic? So where can I start? <laughs> That's a I'm, fairly broad question, it, isn't it? Well, it is, but it's yeah. a really important question given where, we are, where we're all at and, yeah. and the fact that this global pandemic is changing on a daily basis. Excuse me. Look, I'm going to start um, from a very big picture point of view. I don't believe there's any such thing as coincidences. And I think that over recent years, if we if we bring it back probably over the last 10, 15 years, we've seen our world move in ways that many of us have found troubling in terms of nationalism and demonising and othering certain communities Um and I think, I mean, it would probably not be overstating it to say that I think we have been spiralling as a world almost out of control where um, we have been measuring success through the mighty dollar, where we have been turning away and further away from <clears throat> humanity and values. Mental health has been on the rise. Violence has been on the rise. And we've been very much riding this movement of looking inward rather than looking outward. And I think that the timing of what's happening around us is not coincidental. I think 
that when all is said and done and we get through the crisis part of this pandemic, there is an incredible opportunity for each and every one of us, as well as our mm. communities and our leaders, to see this as a great corrector. I think the way we're going to get through is obviously rising above the panic, bringing more humanity to our day-to-day -day life, but returning to the things that we have been yearning for for a long time, connection, mm. community, living and leading with values, getting back to nature and understanding that that is a great leveller, that we are all part of something bigger and reminding ourselves that we are all interconnected. We are one race mm. because what I do today will have a ripple effect on you tomorrow. And I think that it may have taken something as extreme and as unprecedented as this global pan pandemic to show all of us that that is actually a truth that we can't deny. At the risk of sounding cynical, do you have faith that we will come out of it and, and make that correction? Or do you think people uh, will just be so relieved that the emergency is over, they'll want to get back to the good times straight away? And, mm. and and as you mentioned in what you said there, just be ruled by the dollar mm. uh, and those sorts of you know shallow measures of success. I am an eternal optimist. Yep. And I think that We've got to keep hope alive. If we don't as human beings have hope, then there's nothing left. So my honest answer is that I hope fervently that this will be a correction and an awareness and enlightenment that we will stick with and that we'll endure. I think it depends on a lot of choices that we make. Mm. I think it depends on the choices that leaders make in terms of their messaging and their language and how they role model behaviour. I think it depends on whether there is enough of us that can help those that are afraid to lift themselves out of the panic and the knee-jerk reactions. Mm. And I think it honestly depends on how much pain and for how long we suffer. Yep. This is, as I said, unprecedented. You know, you look, for example, at wartime. The sense of community and um, that sense of higher purpose remained for probably one generation and then it petered off. You look at SARS, mm. which is the only other thing that I would probably compare it to. And a lot of those changes in practices and attitudes and the way people lived and interacted with each other, I think remained for probably about 12 months or two years in some of the epicenter areas where it was really affected. Yep. This is bigger than all of that. Mm. This is probably, I would say historically, the first time in the human race's history where there has been a global event that impacts on everyone. Mm. Every single person is impacted on this in all the corners of the world. What's interesting is that the deepest impact will probably be felt by those that are the most affluent and live in the most resourceful countries. Mm. Yep. Because they have, comparatively speaking, more to lose. Yeah. When you start with very little and nothing, you have less to lose. Yeah. The economic consequences Absolutely. Are, are minimal Absolutely. for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. That's right. Um, you mentioned, um, you know, war situations. Probably a good time then to, to go then to your personal experience. Mm -hmm. Um and we'll get to the to the build up to how you became in the role with the British National Forces, um, but can you just take us to you know to Iraq 
mm. um, and why you were there, uh, and and then tell us what happened. Sure. Because I mean that in itself is is an extraordinary story. Sure. So as you said at the beginning, my background is in human rights. Yeah. So I started here in Perth um, as a lawyer, practiced for a number of years in criminal law and in human rights. But my calling was to practice in the area of humanitarian law. So really to serve and to help people that were suffering extreme human rights abuses, but mm. that lived and existed in parts of the world where they didn't have access to justice or equality with concepts that we take for granted. So in the late 1990s, I went in search of trying to realise that calling. And um, within a couple of years, I had come into contact with British Army officers. I um, developed a, a, a few friends in that area. I'd had nothing to do with the armed forces before then. I didn't know anything yeah. about the military. And one of my mates, who was a British Army officer, actually sowed the seed. And he opened my eyes to the possibility of using that institution as a vehicle through which I could access people that so desperately needed help. So I ultimately made the decision to apply for and commission into the British Army as a legal officer. Yep. And through that, um, I was <clears> – <throat> sorry, I've got a – I'm having trouble with my voice today. That's <laughs> occupational hazard. I speak yeah, so much. You do speak a lot. That I have um, <laughs> uh, in my work. Yeah. Um, that I have very little voice left today, so I hope everyone can bear with me. Uh, yeah, so it was through being a legal officer in the British Army that – um, I was eventually deployed to Iraq. Yep. Um, I spent the best part of 2005 in Iraq as one of the very few legal officers supporting mm. the British and the Allied forces. And my so role... In, a, in, yeah. a, in, a, in its essence, what was your job there? I mean, what, My job? What, what were you actually there to do? Two things, yep. essentially. One, to provide um, really sound and strong international and military legal advice mm -hmm. to the armed forces. To make sure they observe conventions. Absolutely. Rules of rules engagement, of yeah. international conventions. That's right, the rules yeah. of war. Law of war, actually, is what they call it. Sure. And my second role, equally important, was to work closely with the Iraqi authorities to mm -hmm. help them rebuild, re-establish law and order in their country. Yeah. After, let's be honest, 18 months previously, we had pretty much destroyed a lot of their infrastructure yeah. through the invasion phase. Yeah. So that's what... That's what was the background that saw me yep. um, go into Iraq at okay. that time in the middle yep. of what we called Operation Telic, yep. what everyone else knows as Gulf 2. What was it like when you first got there? I mean, obviously you're coming from a, a, a non-combat uh, background. Yeah. Um, but you're in a combat environment. Yeah, absolutely. What, so what I'd had it, basic like? training. As yeah. a professional officer, you get basic combat training. Yeah. Just so enough taught how to, to get you by. You know, stay relatively safe. Stay fire relatively a weapon if you safe. Have to. Fire a weapon if it all goes pear shaped, and yep. um, you know you're in 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 major mm. imminent re risk. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I wasn't a trained soldier. Um, yeah. It was a shock. It really was. You you get a lot of training and a lot of preparation in terms of um, readying yourself mm. for what you might encounter, but nothing can really prepare you for being dropped in the middle of a war zone no, and seeing the devastation. Yeah. Not just the physical devastation of communities and buildings that have been bombed and that are now rubble, but seeing the, the distress of people, yep. innocent people whose worlds have not just been turned upside down, but destroyed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and in a moment, I'll get you to fast forward to how you ended up in a hostage situation and then as the hostage yeah. uh, in just a moment. We need to take a break. Rabia Sadiq is our guest. This is WA's Inspiring Stories. Back with more soon. 
You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Rabia Sadiq is our special guest in this episode. Uh, Rabia, we're at the point in the story where uh, you are working as a as a lawyer uh, in the British Army. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been sent to Iraq. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's now fast forward to the part <laughs> where, really, it's 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 probably the most critical time in your in your life. It's yeah. it's it's fight or flight. It's uh, survive or or perish. Um, tell me how you um, came to be firstly uh, a part of a team that was sent to rescue a, a couple of uh, British soldiers. Sure. So this is about two-thirds of the way through my tour. Yep. And the environment in Iraq had been relatively calm Yep. Um, most of that year of 2005. Then in about August, it started going pear-shaped. The technology, the infrared technology, had crossed the borders from Iran into Iraq, which was behind a lot of the bomb attacks that were killing thousands of civilians and military people. We knew that one of the terrorist groups behind that was called the Jaysh al-Mahdi, they had completely infiltrated the police force at this point in time. So you had a situation in Iraq where the country was effectively being governed and run by terrorist coppers. Yeah. September, 19th of September, this is what's going on. So it is very volatile. All the human rights agencies, including the Red Cross, had now pulled out of Iraq because it was too dangerous to move around by air and by road. I arrive at my headquarters on the 19th of September and I hear that two of my colleagues, two British Special Forces soldiers, had been that morning kidnapped, beaten and had been taken to this place that we knew very well. The place was called Al Jamiat. Officially it was the police headquarters in Basra. Unofficially it was the headquarters of this new terrorist group who'd taken it over. Uh, A colleague of mine who was a trained combat officer, who was the same rank as me. By now I'm the rank of major. So I'd been promoted. So this colleague of mine, this mate of mine, James, he's ordered in by our commander to take a group of his men as security for him to go into this place, Al Jamia, to see if he could somehow bust out free, negotiate, get our guys released. Because we knew this place was bad news. Because mm. we also knew because now I was responsible for a lot of the human rights inspections because there was no other agency doing it. So I was it now. So we knew through the information that I provided that this place at any point in time held up to 300 innocent people and they were being tortured by the terrorists. So we knew it was bad news that our guys were there. So off James goes with his guys to help him. About an hour later, he sends a signal back via a radio that he'd smuggled in to the compound. And he basically sends us a message back saying that the Iraqi government had done pretty much what we had done. They had sent their own representative in, an Iraqi judge. Yep. So James arrives, the Iraqi judge arrives, they have a short conversation where the judge says to him, he has no intention of speaking to James because he doesn't trust him and he doesn't know him. Yep. And so they're at an impasse. So James sends a message back to our headquarters explaining to us that the judge had said to him the only one he would speak to, the only one that he trusted, was Major Rabia, which is what my colleagues and friends in Iraq called me. Yeah. 
So James was sending a message back saying, we're not going to get our guys out unless you send Rabia in. So on the strength of that, our commander, who's a brigadier, comes in and orders me in to go in on my own to this place, which is a 15-minute heli- helicopter ride, to go in on my own and take over from James. How was that ride for you? <laughs> well, as soon as I got the order and he explained to me that now um, I would be leading what we understood to be hostage negotiations, I started shaking. I was petrified. I I'm not a trained hostage negotiator, right? I'm not even a properly yeah. trained combat soldier. Mm. So but you I, the law I'm, and you I'm spoke not Arabic. So well, yeah, yeah. but yep. yeah, the ride in, probably the longest helicopter ride of my life. Sure. And I remember thinking, having all of these thoughts of doubt and fear coming into my mind, and just as I was about to get off the helicopter, this sudden sense of calm and control came over me because my father's words popped into my head, and Dad used to say to us as kids growing up that there'll be times in your life, kids, when you'll be called upon to step outside of your comfort zone and to do something really uncomfortable. Mm. And Dad used to say, the decisions that you make in those moments will define your character. And you know, when you're young and you're arrogant and those words have no resonance, Mm. they kind of roll off you. And Whatever, Dad. Absolutely. Cheers, Dad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks very much. Yeah. But I realized in that moment that Dad was speaking about what I was about to encounter there and then. And I realized, I remember thinking to myself, there is no choice. I have to rise up. I have to step outside of my comfort zone because the lives of two friends, two colleagues now rest on me for Mm. better or for worse. And that was the calm that I needed to center myself and to say, well, whatever experience, whatever tools I have, I'm being sent in here for a reason and I have to do the best I can. And I have to stop thinking about me and I have to think about what I'm here to do and how I am now to be of service. Mm. So that's how I got into this situation where actually all things being equal, I Mm. should never have been there. No, no. Um, So tell us then what, what happened when you got there? What were you uh, met with when you arrived in this compound in Basra? So as the helicopter was descending down, looking for a safe place to land, I looked out and I was greeted by a scene that I wasn't prepared for. What had happened was a false story. We talk about fake news. A story had been leaked into the community um, explaining that Israeli spies had been caught and were being detained in this place. And as you can imagine, that, that raced through the community. And by the time I arrived, there was probably about 300 local people that were surrounding this compound mm. and they were screaming for blood. Mm. There was about a hundred British soldiers who had been quickly sent to this place to try and keep these um, civilians calm to stop a riot from erupting. Because I suppose it is, as much as they might fight with each <clears throat> with each other, um, they're all pretty much on the same page in despising the Israelis, right? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And that we found out later that that was part of the terrorist plan. Right. The terrorists leaked yep. that story because they yep. wanted, you know, yeah, all hell to be Chaos. breaking loose outside. Mm. So we managed to land and I jostled my way through this very volatile crowd and I got to the front gate where James was waiting for me and I knew things were not well as soon as I looked up at him and I saw that he was grey. All the colour had drained from his face Mm. and he was sweating and this guy was trained to be very cool in high pressure situations. So he managed a bit of a smile and he took me into this makeshift office where the judge was waiting. 
the judge and I greeted each other. And within probably about a minute or two, the judge then said to me, all right, your, your colleague, James, I have no use for him. He can go. And he turned to James and he said, you, you need to leave now. And of course, that made me even more petrified because James was my security blanket. Yeah. You know, by now I had reconciled being there, but as long as James was going to stay mm. by my side. So I was horrified at this. So I eventually was able to agree, get, uh, get the judge to agree to allow James to stay. But the condition was he had to keep his mouth shut, that it was now between the judge and I. Yeah. So that was okay. We could live with that as a compromise. Within about another 40, 45 minutes, I was able to get the judge to agree to take me to the cell where we believed our guys were being held. Yeah. Because of course I wanted to make sure that they were alive and there was something to negotiate for. Mm. So we get to the cell, which is right down the other end of this compound, this police headquarters, and it's a double stone cell and it has this huge iron door that leads into the cell and we get there and the cell door is open and we're kind of almost pushed into the cell and I'm looking around and in the far corner, I see our two guys and they're bloodied and they're bashed and they're sitting down. And they have hoods over their head and they, their, their ankles and their wrists are chained. But I can see their chests going in and out. So I know that they're breathing. Yep. So I quickly conclude they're still alive. So I immediately ask the judge to ask the police to remove the chains and the hoods. And this is where I learn something that I take with me um, later on in life, which is, you know, when... When things are going pear-shaped and when it looks like everything around you is going down the toilet, one of the things as human beings, and I think as Aussies we're really good at, is trying to see the humour or maintain some sort of humour. And this is where we have a bit of a humorous moment that sort of is a circuit breaker for a few <laughs> which minutes. Which seems unbelievable. Well, yeah. Given the circumstances, but yeah. So I know this sounds like a bonkers thing to say, but bear with me. So the chains are removed and the hoods are taken off their heads. Yep. And as soon as the hoods are taken off the heads of these two colleagues of mine, they look at each other and then they look up and then they look at me and they look me up and down and then yep. they look back at each other and they raise their eyebrows <laughs> and then they look back at me realizing that I'm looking at them and they give me a bit of a polite smile. Yeah. And I knew exactly what they were thinking. They were thinking... Did you know these guys well? Uh, I knew one of them. Yeah. The other one I hadn't met. Yeah. I'd only um, spoken to, um, but I knew one of them. Sure. So I knew exactly what was going through their minds. They mm. were thinking... I can't swear, so I won't, <laughs> I, won't, I won't use the exact words that I thought they were thinking, but I'll tone it down. They were yeah. thinking, oh my goodness. Yeah. Is she the best the British Army can do for us? Two yeah. elite killing machines, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because if she is, then we yeah. are history. We're doomed. We're yeah. doomed. We're doomed. Mm. Um, and, you know, I had some sympathy for that sentiment, but I couldn't say anything because I'm trying to maintain this air of control and authority. So I use my nonverbal communication skills and I look at them and I nod and I give them a bit of a polite smile. And what I'm trying to say to them is, lads, I'm sorry. Yes, I am. And, and you know what? Highly likely, yes, you are. Mm. But I'll give it the best crack I can. I'll give it a red hot go. Mm. So, you know, that was, that was a little bit of a humorous moment in what was an extremely high pressure environment. Yep. And you know what? I think that that probably gave us a bit of strength yep. to get through what we would have to endure for the next few hours. Mm. Yeah. And the next few hours, um, 
I mean, it, it's already pear shaped, but it, 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 it went even further pear shaped, didn't it? It did. So by now, the judge and I had agreed a set of conditions that I would meet, a set of actions that I would take yep. that he required of me in return for him releasing the men into my custody. So over the next, I'd say, hour and a half, two hours, we're agreeing each and every condition that I would meet, act, yep. every act that I would take, and I'm writing them down. I'm mm. scribing them in what you could probably say turns into a release document or yep. contract. But these things are like getting the hoods off right and getting the, some uh, yeah, of the chains removed. Of, let's yep. treat them humanely. Yep. I will agree that I will um, coordinate an independent investigation yep. in terms of your, they, they were alleging that our two guys were, were, were in areas they shouldn't have been. Mm -hmm. So I said, let's investigate that. Um, let's have an independent inquiry. And if they've done wrong, I promise that there will be um, consequences. That, those sorts of things. Yep. yep. So we finally agree. I think there was about seven things, seven actions, and we agree them. And the judge and I are about to sign this release document and all hell breaks loose around us. I could hear what we call RPGs, rocket-propelled yep. grenades, going off in every direction. I could hear what sounded like chaos outside, smashing and crashing and screams and cries. And in the cell where, we, where we're all still standing, there's a little, a tiny little window, a slit of a window. Mm. And I look up to the right above my head where this window is and I could see flames. I could see smoke and flames. And the flames to me appeared so ferocious. And I suddenly became aware that I could feel the heat mm. emanating off these flames. Yeah. What I didn't appreciate until much later was that these were the flames of my colleagues outside, friends outside, on fire. Gosh. Because what had happened by now is that the crowd outside had grown to about two and a half thousand. And they were now storming the compound, having set fire to the British soldiers that had been sent to try and keep them calm. So as this is happening all around us, the atmosphere and the dynamic in the cell where we're standing completely changes. Yep. The police officers that are standing around now reveal themselves to be the terrorists that we knew they were. And they cock their rifles and they turn around and they point them at James and I. Our two colleagues are thrown back into the corner and their hoods are put back over their heads and their chains Rechained. are replaced. Yep. James and I are grabbed by the scruff of our necks and we're thrown out of the cell. And the judge, looking around at what was happening, then turned to me and said to me in Arabic, words to the effect of, I'm sorry, Major Rabia, you and I, we are no longer in control. And he grabbed his papers, he put them in his briefcase, he turned around and he quite literally ran away. And I yep. never saw him again. Wow. James and I were put in another cell further down the corridor. And within about 45 minutes to an hour, there was a bit of a hullabaloo in our cell and four other soldiers were dragged in and thrown into the cell with us, four of our colleagues, four SAS soldiers. They had sneaked their way into the compound in the hope that they could try and grab us and get us out. But unfortunately, they had been caught and they were thrown in with us. So now in our cell, there's six of us. And I'm the only woman. Yep. I'm the only one that speaks a bit of Arabic and I'm the only one with a, with a Middle Eastern Muslim background, all of which had really helped served me in my service, if that makes sense, mm. in Iraq up until that point. But now in this situation, 
in the eyes and in the hands of our captors, I become the prime target. And for the next eight and a half hours in that cell in front of my male colleagues, I was degraded, I was humiliated and I was tortured. And eventually, after about eight and a half hours, and miraculously, really, we were rescued in a British-American combined military rescue operation. Incredible. I think at that moment we should <laughs> we should take a break so that you can um, gather your thoughts because obviously, um, you know, it's been a little while since that happened, but it's still a, a full-on experience for you to revisit, right? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Right, let's take a break. Uh, Rabia Sadiq is our special guest. This is Inspiring Stories. We'll be back with more in just a moment. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories. Everyone has a story to tell, and this uh, rather extraordinary one is brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Uh, Ravi Sadiq is our special guest. Ravi, you've just got to the point where um, you've just endured hours of sheer hell mm. and, and, and terror, and I mean that in the strongest sense of those words, um, but you've just thankfully had British and, and American forces come to your rescue. Yes. Um, can you describe... What's going through your mind as that's taking place? Because I'm, I'm assuming there's still a lot of chaos. A lot of chaos. Noise. Yes. Screaming. Yes. People don't know what's going on. I think for me, I was in such a heightened sense of alertness. Yep. And in absolute survival mode. Yep. And I think I had part, you know, we would talk about fight or flight. Mm. And fight, flight, flight and freeze, actually. Right. And I'd passed through all of that. Yep. You know, I'd passed through... The, the, the freeze, the absolute, mm. I cannot speak, I cannot move, I feel like I am anchored to the floor. Then I went through the whole flight mode. Is there any way that we can get ourselves out of here, run, um, anything? And, and I think I had entered into that fight mode of mm. we just have to, we have to keep ourselves alive. So when the tanks came for us and... That was scary as well because we didn't know whether um, the tanks couldn't come right up to where we were. We had to actually get ourselves out of this compound and travel some distance to meet with the tanks. And, you know, there was fears about, is this booby trapped? Mm. Are we going to be killed by a sniper on our way out? So you're is still thinking that bomb? it could be all over at any second. Absolutely. Yeah. And it wasn't really until we got into the tanks and I was sitting in the back of one of these tanks that I allowed myself a millisecond to think mm. this may be over. Yeah. So it was a miracle because actually what we didn't realise is um, after they came and rescued us, the six of us, our two original guys had been taken to another location. So as soon as they got us, we went to this secondary location and we got to them just in the nick of time because they were about to be beheaded. Oh, my God. So it was indeed a miracle yeah. that we survived. Yeah. And, you know, that should be the end of the story. Yeah. But we know that life and endings are not necessarily neat and triumphant mm. like they are in the movies. Um, and it sounds like a, a script for a movie and it sort of became one in time, didn't it? But but before it's that, before you got to that point, um, so you're back in the in the UK and you're 
your battle, if you like, shifted to a different arena, didn't it? Yeah. Because obviously there was a, an inquiry uh, back in the UK into how it all came to be and, yes. and what took place and how it was eventually resolved. And, yes. and f- for reasons that, you know, that, well, they never probably explained at the time. Yes. You were frozen out of that, weren't you? I was. So really the worst thing that I should have had to have endured yeah. was what I experienced as a hostage that day. But actually that was almost nothing compared to the hell that I endured for a number of years afterwards. Mm. And you, you've, you've summarised it right. You've been quoted as saying that it was even worse. It Dealing was. With it was the, more traumatic. With the prejudices within the, the British Army yeah. were worse than being in that hostage moment. Yes. In fact, in my official diagnosis, because a year after returning from Iraq, I was eventually diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. In my official diagnosis, the um, consultant psychiatrist said that I had, that, that what had triggered my PTS was not what I had endured as a hostage in Iraq, but what I endured mm. um, as treatment at the hands of my colleagues and my superiors whom I trusted. What was that treatment, just, you know, in, in concise terms? So, yeah, in, lay, in, in, in a very, the very short version, yeah. all of the men that, was, that were held hostage with me were acknowledged, were recognised, were celebrated. And James, my mate, you'll remember me talking yep. about James, he was even decorated by the Queen. Mm. I was treated very differently. Oh, and, and, and they were all provided with trauma counselling, yep. which was standard military procedure. I was dealt with very differently. No trauma counselling no acknowledgement or recognition of the role that I had played or what I had endured. Mm. And I was issued with a gag order. I was ordered in writing to never speak of the role that I had performed that day. So I was essentially silenced. Yeah. So we wouldn't be having this conversation today. No. If they had their way. No. I was Mm. written written out of the event. There was to be no private or public record of my presence on that day. Mm. And I knew that that was unjust yeah. and I knew that that was absolutely because I was a woman and because I was a foreigner yeah. and probably because of my race as well. Yeah, Which is an interesting aspect to this tale anyway, isn't it? Because at one point you were a poster girl, if you like, for for the British Army, weren't you? Yeah. You were, your image was used as this shining example right. of diversity. Of the new diverse, within fresh their culture. face yeah. of the British Army. Yeah. I was literally, my face was on a British Army poster yeah. that year and the year before. Yeah. So there was a huge irony there. When you were um, then about to sue them yes. um, for discrimination, um, <clears throat> yeah. some people, and, and, and they were quoted in the media, uh, labelled you as being... Um, you know, seeking fame and yes. seeking medals and yes. seeking money. Yes. Being a money grabber. That's right. Uh, in Th- fact, that more than that, a, I, was, uh, I was branded a money-grabbing, medal-hunting traitor. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's nicely put, isn't it? Yeah, that was one of the um, headlines. Was that part of the PTSD uh, for you? I had already been diagnosed by that stage. So what I should say is you don't wake up one morning and decide you're going to sue the British Army and government. No. That decision took two years to come to, and that was only after exhausting every other avenue of yeah. trying to right this wrong. Yeah. And I agonised over that decision because I knew it would come at great personal cost mm. to me, my family, and that would be the end of my military career. Yeah. But I felt I had to take that step because yeah. if that was happening to me with all my privilege and voice and influence, what on earth was happening to other people that didn't have a voice. Yeah. So I knew I had to take that stand. Yeah. And yes, it took 18 months to get to court and that was part of the casualty of it 
you know, mm. the military and the government threw everything they could to try and intimidate me, discredit me into dropping my case. Mm. But as we know, there have been many moments in history where people in power underestimate the resolve of ordinary people who decide that they won't be broken anymore mm. and that they're going to do something extraordinary. Yeah. Um, of all the other extraordinary things that you've done, I want to ask you about this after the break, um, having triplets, yeah. a, a challenge of a, of a very different kind. All of the uh, other stuff is imagine, training for that. Exactly. And, and, and as a kind of a circuit breaker to your life and everything yeah. that you'd been through, I can imagine there can be no better circuit breaker than having triplets. No bigger joy <laughs> or challenge. Yeah. So look, uh, we need to take another break, but sure. uh, keen to get your thoughts on, um, on that after that. So Pleasure. this is Inspiring Stories. Rabia Sadiq is our special guest. Back with more soon. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. This is Inspiring Stories with Tim McMillan on 882 6PR brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, we're with our special guest in this episode, Rabia Sadiq. Uh, Rabia, so you've had this extraordinary uh, adventure, that seems the wrong word to use, but <laughs> time, experience, yeah. <laughs> experience, many, many experiences, um, being in, in Iraq and being uh, in the UK, triplets, mm. triplets just happens they in, your, were my in, reward. in your life. Yeah. Yeah. They were my reward. Um, at what point um, did they arrive? How old are they now? You know, were, were you They're sort 11? of, were you finished with, no. um, with your oh, UK no, stint? Tim. No. I actually discovered I was having triplets. Yeah. Two months before my case came to court. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's the, the timing was unbelievable. Yeah. Because we, my then husband and I went through quite a bit after, mm. after and in the lead up to the court case. Yeah. We st tried to start a family. I got pregnant. At the four-month point, I had a very rare form of ectopic pregnancy that was very dangerous. As soon as I recovered, he was diagnosed with cancer. Very poor prognosis, but came through. So yeah. we didn't think that kids would be on the cards for us. Mm. We went down the IVF route mm -hmm. and were very, very fortunate that our three boys came out of it. So this was a high risk, but mm. highly, highly anticipated and yep. valued pregnancy. Yep. So two months before my case came to court, I yep. found out about that. Is your husband Australian or did you meet him over there? Uh, no, um, he, uh, ex-husband. Yes, um, sorry. Still good sorry, friends. Sorry. No, 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 no. It's all good. Uh, British. British. Um, I met him in the military. Right. He was a, a Royal Air Force officer at the time. Yep. Um, yep. So, um, you know, he pulled yep. through and beat the odds, which was wonderful. Mm. Uh, so, yes. Yeah. Um, that was the, that was really the driver for us to mm. return to Perth mm. and to come back home. How did that feel coming back uh, after a long time away. Oh, 13 years away. Mm. I was ready. Yeah. Um, honestly, um, I don't think if we'd had the children, we would have been motivated to come back. We had, we, we both moved on and out of the military, um, into, into careers that we loved and we had a pretty good life. Uh, but you know, when one becomes a parent, one looks at the world differently and yeah. your priorities changed. Yeah. And for me, it was undeniable that I wanted the boys to benefit from the incredible lottery of life that I had won in mm. growing up in this beautiful, safe, healthy, affluent country yeah. with all its opportunities. So coming back was absolutely the right time and it was motivated by the boys. But I have to say it took me a little while yeah. because the Perth, the WA that I came back to, it was middle of mining boom yeah. and I didn't recognize the place. No. So it took me probably a good couple of years to settle 
acclimatize and find my new place mm. in at home. Yeah. And I know you've written a book um, and you've got a, a, another work in progress at the moment. Yes. Um, am I right in thinking that that your story, based on the book that you wrote uh, yes. in 2013, uh, there was a, there was a yeah. screenplay adapted uh, from that, and there was even talk that Angelina Jolie was going to play you. <laughs> is that true? Don't believe what you read. Um, <laughs> no, Angelina Jolie is not playing. Look, at one point, at one point, her company was interested. Yeah, um, there has I can been see some, her playing. I mean, yeah, well, yeah. Thank you. That's I quite mean, a compliment. Well, <laughs> um, look, there has been some interest both um, here in Australia and overseas. Yeah. Nothing has eventuated yet, but there has been interest in in converting the story to a film. I mean, it it, it cries out for it, doesn't it? Uh, you know, I um, maybe not for you, it, but yeah. No, look, if it gives it a, the platform for the story and the messages in the story to um, reach more people, then I'm all for it. And mm. I think in our current social and economic times. Maybe the themes in my story have a place yeah, yeah. now more than ever. Yeah. So, yeah. The, the work that's in progress at the moment. Yes, book uh, two. What's, what, what's that about? So, um, first book was Equal Justice, which is essentially the memoir. Yeah. You know, a lot of the story that I'm sharing with you and everyone mm. today. Book two, and I didn't realise perhaps how prophetic it would be, um, is called A Beautiful Revolution. And it's basically about... Focusing on the positive that's come out of the decline that we're seeing in our world and about how we are at the point in our history where we are no longer relying on leaders to set the tone and to solve the problems in the world and how there, there is this incredible people and community inspired movement of change. People are taking back their agency and they are taking a stand and saying not in our name and we'll be the change. Mm. So it is all about how we have and can continue to be the ones to lead change in our lives and in our communities and in our world, which is why I'm calling it a beautiful revolution because yep. I think that is the stage that we are at as a world population. And I think with the pandemic that we're all wrestling with now, I think that there there is a globe, golden opportunity mm. for us to hang on to that. Sounds like the perfect read when you're in, in self-isolation. Absolutely. Let's hope so. I just need to hurry up and finish. <laughs> exactly right. I don't know that we're quite at the finish line of this uh, world episode just yet, but no. uh, yeah, all the best with it. And I really thank look you. forward uh, to reading it. So thank you so much for coming in and, and sharing your story. Uh, warts and all, of course, if people want to read more about that, then uh, End of Justice is the... Uh, Equal justice. Sorry. That's all right. End of justice. What am I talking about? Let's hope Equal it's not justice. the end of justice, hey? <laughs> Equal justice is the perfect place to go. Thank you. Uh, Ravia, thank you so much. Such for, a pleasure. For sharing your story with us. We do appreciate it. Uh, you've been listening to Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA inspiring story. You're listening to another inspiring story brought to you by Barra and O'Day because the little things are everything. When making the double chicken deluxe at Macca's, we wanted to improve on the perfect combo of tender Aussie chicken with cheese, tomato and aioli. So, we doubled it. Chicken and Macca's together and loving it. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Available after 10.30am for a limited time only.